is from the Good News According to John, chapter 12, beginning at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in, Greek, in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. For those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. You are the God of beauty and sunshine and deep oceans, but you are also the God of the cross. You are the God of our joy, and you are God in our sorrow, our darkness, and brokenness. So we pray, Father, in these words, glorify your name. In Jesus' name. Amen. So a while back, I was listening to a podcast about the intersection between sports and faith in America. There's a huge number of athletes in the States who identify openly as Christians. It's a different culture. I mean, could you imagine say, Sidney Crosby, cup, Stanley Cup overhand, saying, I'd like to thank the Lord Jesus Christ. Probably not. Probably not. Christianity in America is big, and we all know that it's a mixed bag in many ways. But part of so many game day routines include public and private prayer. One of the most common prayers by athletes is a petition 
to God for them, for God to use their athletic talent and physical prowess to bring God glory. That's why it's not uncommon to see a quarterback clutching a silver trophy, you know, starting off after the big win saying, I'd like to thank Jesus, right? It's so fans across the world could see these incredible acts of endurance and skill and attribute them not to the athlete, but to the God who made them. Now, I will admit, I will admit this to you, that I used to find all of this kind of crass and kind of hokey. I mean, how high is the NBA on God's list of priorities. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I've offended anybody, any basketball fans out there. Hockey too. It's across the board. Insert your sport there. But I've come to appreciate it a bit because it's kind of refreshing in the million dollar, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar world of pro sports that someone attributes their success to anything other than their own hard work and determination. There's a sense of humility there, a sense of gratitude. Anything to deflect and deflate an overpowering ego is fine by me. That being said, there's something that doesn't quite sit right about this. A little nagging issue about this whole glory thing. And that's scripture passages like today's. In today's passage, Jesus is at the height of his success. Last chapter, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was dead for three days, and Jesus called him out of the tomb. This was a moment where crowds of fans started to gather around, where opponents started to get nervous about Jesus. He's so popular now, it says, that some Greeks come looking for him. And, you know, Greeks are non-Jews. They're religious outsiders, cultural outsiders, too. They're not in on Jesus' particular religious game. They're like lacrosse fans who've never watched a game of basketball but find themselves courtside watching Michael Jordan. Jesus is incredible. He's at the pinnacle of his fame, and the movement's just picking up steam. A legion of fans awaits. Jesus is just one step away from honor, power, and yes, glory. Sir, say the Greeks. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Maybe they're expecting another greater miracle. Maybe they're expecting Jesus to gather an army and toss the Romans out and to crown Jesus over top Pontius Pilate's lifeless body. Things can go only go upward from here, right? Yeah, not so much. When Philip and Andrew, Jesus' disciples, bring new admirers just itching for an autograph, Jesus gives a rather unexpected interview. Starts off good. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, Jesus says. Big games ahead. Glories coming to God real soon. But then he shares this convoluted metaphor 
of a grain having to get buried and die before it bears fruit. Then he says that those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I mean, you can see the reporters, you know, whispering amongst each other. Their eyebrows start to be raised. He said glory, but it doesn't sound very glorious at all. Maybe it's just the adrenaline from raising Lazarus. But he didn't misspeak. It's not an error of any kind. Now my soul is troubled, Jesus says. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. I can tell you're all unsettled by this talk, Jesus says, but so am I. But I mean what I say about the seed dying, about giving up my life and you giving up your life to follow me. Then Jesus hands out, palms upward, looks to the sky and prays, saying, Father, glorify your name. Now this is only one of the seven prayers that we actually have recorded of Jesus in the whole Bible, but this is even more unique in that this is the only time that God actually answers back to Jesus' prayer. Right? The only time he gets a direct response. Father, glorify your name, Jesus says. Then God replies, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And then Jesus goes on to tell the crowd that the powers of destruction and evil are headed for a brutal defeat, that when he's lifted up in his crucifixion, he'll draw all humanity to himself, and that his death is going to be the thing that does it doesn't sound particularly glorious at all. Basically, it's like Jesus saying, I'm going to have the highest score in history without ever making a single shot. A hundred to nothing in favor of the other team. Zero assists, no dazzling three-point plays. I'm going to let stuff bounce off me into my own team's net. In fact, I'm going to spend three days in the penalty box atoning for the other team's violations. I'm going to lose badly. I'm going to lose brutally. Brutally badly. And you know what? When I do, I'm going to win. I'm actually going to win. And when I do, everybody watching will be drawn to me like a magnet. And if you want to win the ring with me, you got to learn how to lose in the exact same way. To which God, over the loudspeaker, says, Amen. This is what Jesus means by the word glory. According to John, it's Jesus' suffering that glorifies God, not his positive attitude. It's his failure, not his success, that glorifies God. It's his loss, his shame, not his triumph or his pride. It's not his notoriety, his wealth, his status, his privilege, or even his life that glorifies God. 
It's his death. It's on the cross that he wins the pennant of righteousness. It's on the cross where he drinks drinks deep from the Stanley Cup of salvation. On the cross, he is lifted up, his name raised above all other names. It's from there that he draws all people to himself, to that great cosmic tailgate party we call the kingdom of heaven. His glory doesn't look like glory at all, but according to John, it's Jesus' apparent loss that's the ultimate triumph of God over the powers of sin and evil and death for good. Now, I'm not exactly sure that this is what most professional athletes mean by the word glory. I don't think, actually, I don't think that it's what any of us mean when we use the word or think of the concept of glory. For us, glory is all in the good stuff. It's in the control and peacefulness of stable circumstances. It's in the virtue and nobility of doing good, the wealth, notoriety, and esteem of success. It's in the strength, beauty, and comfort of healthy, unvarnished bodies. For us, that is goodness, that is glory. All the other stuff, pain, sorrow, suffering, humiliation, that is disgrace. Embarrassment, meant to be avoided at all costs. And we spend our lives trying to hit those high highs. And if we don't, we live our lives, we see our lives as a blowout, a loss, a wash, a write-off. A failure. According to Jesus, though, there is a different kind of glory, a different kind of divine activity, one that we can only know through the logic of the cross. This glory we can only know through weakness. It's one we can only encounter through loss, through sacrifice, through shame and humiliation. And this glory is greater than any other on earth. It's where God is drawing each and every one of us to himself. A few months ago, there was this great essay in the Christian Century magazine It was by a woman in Michigan named Lori Hartzell about her relationship with her elderly, now elderly father. Her dad was loving, but always strict and quite conservative. As she reached her teens, they started to fight over pretty much everything. And as she grew up, they couldn't even have a conversation for fear of it escalating into a full-blown argument. One thing they did have, though, was sports. They were both super athletic people. Instead of talking politics, they'd play ping pong. Softball instead of sea rise due to climate change. They had this way of bonding together and with her children, his grandchildren, even though they couldn't really 
keep on basic chit-chat even. Eventually, though, her dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And gradually, this one active, once active and physically imposing man lost control of much of the body he took so much pride in. Eventually, he was wheelchair-bound and moved into assisted, an assisted living facility. And there he was in, needed, needed of, in need of round-the-clock round attention. He couldn't really do anything for himself. It felt like a double loss at the time. Not only was he unable to play the game anymore, any game, they'd also lost this crucial buffer in their relationship that allowed them to be together without killing each other. His glory days were over. He was out of the game for good. Then, in the midst of all this loss, though, something new and different happened in her father's life and their relationship. They started watching football together instead of playing it. And one day, while watching the game, her dad opened up to her in a way he'd never before. Dad told me, she says, Dad told me that the hardest thing about having Parkinson's was not being able to do everything for himself and needing the help of others. Especially difficult was the deep humiliation of having someone else bathe him every day. It's got me thinking, he said. It's got me thinking that I live my spiritual life that way too, with self-sufficient pride. I think I have to do everything, but I don't. God's grace means it's okay. I don't have to do it. God does it. She'd never had her dad share that way before. But she says, that was a new kind of movement in my dad's life. A movement of grace. And it created a new landscape in our relationship so we could move together this vulnerability. We could talk about faith and God's presence and what it meant to be healed. We didn't always agree and we still didn't venture into politics much, she says. We surely couldn't move together in that realm. But our relationship, by God's grace, went from a familiar physical movement into a deeper, more internal movement that swirled with pain and, in the end, deep joy. Hartzell and her dad learned how to play the game of life in a whole new way by a whole different set of rules. Not on the world's terms, terms of success, power, health, and wholeness, but they'd learned glory of a different kind. The glory of the cross, a power made perfect in weakness. 
one in which Christ drew them to himself and to each other. In his loss, they gained each other. Because in Christ, we discover, to our deep dismay, that what we have in common is our human weakness and our deep need. In their loss, they experienced true grace and gained a glimpse of beauty, the beauty of everlasting life. That's because for them, the glory days weren't over. But with Christ, they were back to the very first inning, one that never, ever ends. So think about your own life. When have you failed at your life goals? When have you screwed up your relationships, hurt the people you love, disappointed people who depended on you? When have you been betrayed, damaged by people who you thought you could trust and still can't get over it? When have you been so despairing of the state of the world and its politics? When have you been so weak, hurt, and helpless that you couldn't do anything about it? That is where God is at work right now. Redeeming you and all of human history. If only you have eyes to see it. Because guess what? God used the wicked, ugly incident of total human depravity in history, this negation of all things good and beautiful to show her love for the world and win the final victory over evil and the powers of sin and death. God took that empty, meaningless nothing and turned it into something itself into the ultimate instrument and symbol of love in the universe. And if God could do that with that nothing, and if God could do that with Lori Herzl and her father's nothing, God can do the same for you. Your nothingness, your lowliness, your weakness, your folly, your finitude, failure, and shame, and turn it into something even more beautiful than human strength. If only you'll let them. Friends, brothers and sisters, the good news is that glory game we've been playing that only ends in disappointment, loss, and death, it ain't the only game in town. There's a whole other league to join, one in which we have all been already been drafted in the first round, by God's electing grace, the contract sealed in our baptisms. In it, we've been given the whole new set of rules where our weakness is Christ's strength and where our sin abounds, so his grace abounds all the more so. And it's where we're being cheered on by saints, both living and dead, saints like Lori Herzl and her father, who've got one foot in the end zone of the victory that Christ has already won. The game of life ain't over because in the cross resides the glory of God. And because in the cross resides the glory of God, our game is never over. 
because God's grace just begins. Father, we pray, glorify your name. Amen.